Hello, Mead friends. Welcome to the Regenerative Mead Podcast. I'm your host, Brando Tice, and today Frank and I sit down to talk about the subjectivity and objectivity of tasting high-quality mead. We start off the conversation with our experiences in tasting meads with others and how highly variable reactions can be depending on who's drinking it. We then move into trying to figure out a framework to allow for both subjective and objective experiences to be a part of tasting meat and how both are of value to the meat industry as a whole. Now let's get into it. Hey everyone, here at Golden Coast Mead, we consider drinking alcohol not only a luxury, but a celebration of life. If you partake in this celebration, we advocate for drinking regenerative mead made from real honey to help shift the $1.5 trillion alcohol industry in a better direction. When you drink our regenerative mead, you are helping to make the earth healthier, more biodiverse, and abundant. Drop monoculture-based booze and drink regenerative mead. Visit our website, www.goldencoastmead.com, to learn more about our regenerative mead business and be a part of the celebration. Cheers. 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 Happy what? podcast day. Happy podcast day. You're drinking the sour again? Mm, wildflower sour. Goes down so smooth. I got the wildflower dry. Nice. Tasting crisp. Crisp. Floral. Floral. Orange yeah. citrus. The uh, wildflower sour is... Complex, tart, refreshing, multiple layers, finished, keeps going, keeps going. I'm telling you, it's a great beverage. It's an endless gift. It is. Um, yeah, I love the floral perfume characteristics and then the rich honey mid-palate and the tart complexity and then the way that they all dance together as it goes down. Mm. Let me ask you this, Frank. Have you ever had someone not like a wildflower sour from Golden Coast? Yeah, yeah. There's people that, you know, will taste it and just be like, that is not my glass of mead. And that's okay. We've been doing it for 11 years now, and so we've seen a lot of different people drink mead. And that means that there's going to be people who don't like it. Yeah, and I think that's something that's super interesting, not only in mead, but in, I mean, beverage industry in general. The subjectivity in what you're tasting and how it impacts what you purchase and just how every industry deals with the conundrum of what is objectively a good tasting beverage or mead and what is a bad tasting beverage and mead and then you also have to add into that equation the subjectivity of your consumer and what they are liking or not liking and i think that's something that's worth talking about today with you and seeing what your thoughts are on it yeah i think it's a critical question that the mead industry is navigating and through our work at golden coast mead and then our work at the mead institute we hope to help that conversation resolve into something really useful where producers and consumers and people involved in the business are talking about the same terms uh, and using them in order to design and produce and share and appreciate 
high quality means, but then there's a still space for creativity and still space for finding new approaches to things that may, may have been done a certain way before or have never been done before and how to differentiate good outcomes from outcomes that need to be changed next time. Um, specifically using these terms of objective quality and subjective quality. That's fair. And I think the biggest thing to tackle is objective, which is something that there has to be a number related to an objective standard in my head, at least. And you correct me if I'm wrong, but there has to be like a measurable test that you can put the meat through and it spits out a number of sulfites or whatever it is. And like, that's objectively bad, even though a consumer might like that flavor, that's okay. They can like bad meat, but objectively, most of the industry would agree that's not a good level of that flaw. Yeah. Is that a good way to start with objectivity or would you approach it a different way? Yeah, I think objectivity is the ability to look at something objectively as an object that can be interpreted and measured in certain characteristics. And so those measurements can be reproduced independent of the subject, the one who perceives the object, right? Like a, an inch is an inch whether you're looking at it from one corner of the table or another corner of the table. Mm -hmm. um, so in the case of a mead that might have a hydrogen sulfide flaw, right? Which is like rotten eggs. Um, in some beer styles that's called for. Uh, so maybe we're making a braggot that's supposed to be like a farmhouse Saison and it needs to have some uh, H2S character to be technically accurate. Well, in that case, objectively, as long as it's not too much, then that's desirable. And that's actually a mark of like complexity and quality. But in the case of, I think, most meads that are varietal honey or fruit forward, then H2S is going to detract from that. And so the level of objective H2S measurement that's acceptable is probably going to be way lower and that bracket where H2S is acceptable. And then what is subjectively desirable? You know, just because the bracket in the style of a farmhouse Cezanne is objectively on style, subjectively, it could be completely undesirable to a person who is very sensitive to H2S. Mm -hmm. So this question of subjective quality and hedonistic versus right hedonistic pleasure, which is the, the subject's ability to drink something and say, ooh, I like this, this gives me pleasure, which is ultimately every individual's prerogative. There's no telling someone that they can't like something. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we wanna empower people to find the things that they like and understand why they like it and be able to articulate it so that they can really own that pleasure and find more of it in the world. Mm -hmm. But when it comes back to subjective quality, 
it's laying out these guidelines of balance and complexity and intensity and finish and the way that all of those characteristics are melded together and to an extent harmonized. And if they're done really well, it'll deliver an experience that's really transformational for the drinker or inspiring for the drinker. And if it's done poorly, it's like, okay, objectively, that's a clean mead, but subjectively, it does not light me up the way that a subjectively great mead does. Yeah. And I think what I picture in my head, at least when I think about it is objectively, you can create a framework. You can create these flaws. Yeah. Like this is objectively, these flaws can be measured. And if your me doesn't have these, you're within the framework of like quality me. Yep. And within that framework, there's a lot of subjectivity that can play into like what takes that objectively good me to that next level that you're talking about, where it gives me this amazing experience and it's transformational rather than just free of flaws, essentially. And as long as you're within the framework and you're free of the objective flaws, the world is your oyster within mead and how you want to present it. Nice. I think that's a great mental model. Imagining the framework, knowing that if there are objective flaws present, that's going to take you outside of the framework. So that's not objectively good quality. But then if you're free of those flaws, you're within the framework that is objectively good quality. And now it's a matter of degrees, this question of subjective quality. Mm -hmm. And what takes your me to that next level rather than it just being like your base level is free of flaws, essentially. And the way I would describe that in coffee is like that's an 80 point specialty coffee 79 is commercial it has flaws don't want it 80 point you're free it may not be the best tasting coffee but you're there you're in specialty and so with mead it's kind of like hitting that number or whatever you want it you got like we want it to be it's kind of like that's you're hitting a mark you're mead free is, of flaws yeah yeah you're good but okay what's after that how can I take the meat to the next level? And even though I understand not everyone's going to love what I'm creating or what I'm producing, I know there is going to be someone out there that this drink is transformational for them and they enjoy it essentially. Yeah. And I don't know how you feel about like that framework or would you approach it a different way? No, I love that. I think, dialing in the range of good to great is the question right so knowing the good means free of flaws great means deliver some level of subjective quality experience that is inspiring Mm -hmm. and and captivating and that there might be some people for whom it really connects with and others for whom it does not yeah and i think taking your 
applaud me to the next level, there's a lot of different things to consider, in my opinion. Would you agree with that? There's like how you make it. There's the ingredients. So process ingredients. There is essentially like ethical value that can be integrated into it. There's like rarity of ingredients too that can be taken into it. So you're taking from Ken Schramm's essay on the Mead Institute website about quality to kind of cite these yeah, categories. Yeah, I'm referencing like he wrote about the different things that impact quality and price and need and just being able to connect the dots on like, hey, I can make a clean, flaw-free mead, but how do I take it to that next level? I think he writes up a good article about how there's different things that impact that. Yeah, ingredient quality, process quality. Like ethical values. Yep. And your the rarity of the ingredients. And the skill of the craftsperson who's like got this idea that they're striving for, but reality is always different than the mm -hmm. idea. And so you've got to have this technical skill to move that reality in that direction mm -hmm. without getting too far off to one side. Yeah. Okay. And like your image as a business and like how it's packaged impacts it too. So I think that's less about quality and more about value and about price. Okay. You know, that like image uh, quality should speak for itself. If the product is in a Brown bag, you know, or, or you're poured it blind, like it, if a great producer has kind of been laboring in the shadows, pours a beverage, and no one knows who it is and or where what it is, but then, like, it's the proper setting where people are tuning in and really paying attention, and then that producer's product gets in someone's mouth. Ideally, those markers of quality that are the result of all of that craftsmanship, craftspersonship, all of that craft speaks to that consumer regardless of brand and identity and packaging. Well, that's interesting. I think where I'm going to push back on you on that is experience. Someone's experience with the product impacts how they're tasting it. Yeah. And yeah. the part of the packaging and how it's presented to them has an impact on your experience with it. Totally. And even if I'm looking at it, subjectively if i have a really nice mead but it's in a brown bag and it's raining outside <laughs> and i'm not having a good day yeah my experience with that really good mead is going to be different if it's in a beautiful package and it's a sunny day and You're instead with, of being alone i'm with friends or family the love of your life yeah totally but, so even though objectively speaking it might be the same exact mead i'm trying I feel like like how it's presented to you, no matter what, is going to have an impact on your experience with it. Would you agree with that or no? Absolutely. I mean, humans are incredibly suggestible and influenced by context and expectations. So if you wine and dine someone, mm -hmm. just by virtue of that experience, unless they're there to taste critically, the likelihood that they're going to find it subjectively pleasing and 
high quality is much higher, mm-hmm. right? If you're whining and dining them than if you're throwing it to them in a brown bag in a in an alley. Although I do like the idea of drinking really good meat in a brown bag. Yeah. <laughs> there have been a couple nights like that, but we don't need to get into those. Um, so to that point, I think it's important, though, to separate context and variables that are independent of the actual liquid okay and the subjective quality experience of the liquid okay right that like all things being equal a great mead should stand out over a ho-hum mead yeah right that's fair i guess my question would be how would you want to like communicate that to a consumer that idea that like we have a higher quality tasting mead and it stands out against the others, but how should that properly be communicated to someone who just is looking at stuff on the shelf? I mean, Gary, who runs our farmer's markets, said recently, have them taste it, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, is, is where the where the proof is, is in the tasting. Um, but if I can't have people taste it, then communicating to them that it is a craft that we've been working on for 11 years, that we do our best to create something that is honey forward, but balanced and refreshing so that it's suited to the Southern California climate where you know it's warm the majority of the year and people are more likely gonna enjoy things that are flavorful and refreshing. Um, if you think about it in terms of like Mead Institute, though, and industry wide, mm-hmm. how would you want to differentiate like Mead that is brewed by people who are a part of the Mead Institute and are meeting these higher quality standards versus Everything someone who's else. not there yeah. or someone who's outside that framework? How do you picture that in your head? Oh, man, that's a great question. So we kind of talk about the Mead introduction uh, hump and that we're competing or rather we're working against these typically negative experiences that people in our culture have had with me before, whether it was a friend in college brewing some in the dorms under terrible conditions with no nutrient addition and no temp control and no aeration. And so even though it was alcoholic at the end, it was the subject of a ton of yeast stress and was totally off quality. Um, So we've got to help them overcome that hurdle or the folks that go to the Ren Fair and they drink like these super sweet, you know, hot, intense, not pleasant Ren Fair meads. And they think that's all that meat is. And it's like, well, no, that's like saying that wine is only Manischewitz and beer is only you know, Bud Light, like, Mm -hmm. no, there's a whole category and we've got to get over this initial negative impression of subjective, of poor subjective quality to open up to a world of objective quality. But what's that going to be? How are we going to get there? And with Golden Coast Mead, we hope that we can get folks there by saying the mead that we make is really taken care of 
and it's crafted to be balanced and complex and, and enjoyable. Give it a try. All right. I'm just riffing on ideas here. Okay. But what if like labels could have the stamp of the queen bee? Yeah. So that's the mean Institute where we're looking at having a quality point scale. Okay. That translates to like certain metals or some way of communicating. This is of this level of quality. This is of this level of quality. And this is of this exceptional level of quality so that retailers and consumers can really mitigate their risk entering the meat market. So the Meat Institute is working towards creating a point scale or a system that identifies different higher qualities. How do you guys want to approach the subjectivity within the scale? Is that something you guys are addressing or is that something you're still like fine tuning? We're very much fine tuning it. It's uh, so right now Meat Institute is recruiting members and we want to have uh, a decent membership base and some decent momentum before we pick up this critical task. Cause if we do it ourselves and it's not a shared approach across the industry, we think we're really missing an opportunity to engage and um, transform the industry. Yeah. So it's something we want to do with other people and we want to have this first 50, this group of the first 50 meteries who join be involved in that conversation and that design process so that it's something that we all agree is worth submitting our means for consideration and potential scoring by the system that we design. That's fair. Do you feel like there's any like stucks that you're on personally when it comes to the topic? Of establishing the point system? Yeah. Or just the difference between objective and subjective tasting. So I've had conversations with Alex and Tram and she has a lot of training in this and she made the argument. Well, she, she stated the argument quality is objective period. Okay. You want to know what comes to my mind when I, yeah, like level seven sommelier, like that is in my head, that's objective quality. If you are 11 level seven Somalia, like a master song. Yeah. Like there's only like 200 ish in the world, 150, 200. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you have one of them taste your wines, you can most likely get an objective like reading on your wine. Okay. Is what comes to my head when that statement is done. But is that just going to evaluate whether it's free of flaws or not? Or is that going to say based off of, you know, the complexity and the length and the intensity and the finish, like. I th both. I think it'll be, uh, I think it'll be a full scale. Your wine is good or not good. And it's, they'll be able to tell you if there's flaws or not. And they'll also be able to dive into the wine with you and like tell you the complexities with it and all that. Mm -hmm. I think my mind goes to that, but then on the other side of that, it's kind of like, well, is your customer base level seven Psalms or are you trying to sell mead or wine to the general consumer? 
just because 150 people agree your wine's really good or is 100 objectively doesn't necess necessarily mean it's going to sell very well on the shelves. Well, and I think, too, like a psalm's job is to help people understand wine, mm -hmm. right? And that does have a quality aspect. But when it comes to the psalm telling people whether it's good or not, if it's beyond objective flaw analysis, then it's really the psalm sharing their perception, their opinion. It's like a critic watching a, a play. You yeah. know, they've seen a lot of art. They've, they've witnessed a lot of performance. So they are positioned to say, relative to all the performance I've witnessed, this is either a good or a bad example of it. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that someone who shows up in that theater isn't going to derive pleasure from the theater if the critic said it wasn't good. That's true. Right? Yeah. But is it commensurate with the price that's being asked or charged? Right? Like that's maybe where the qualitative aspect and the skill of a psalm helps helps the consumer, the average consumer navigate the market is that by these psalms being in the market and saying, all right, I'm out here, I'm tasting this. It is worth the money that they're asking for. Or relative to all the things that I've drunk in my life, this is not worth the money that they're asking for. Yeah. That's like, a, I think, a really helpful feedback mechanism for an industry. I agree. And I think that gets to context matters, ultimately, when talking about subjectivity versus objectivity, right? Yeah. Anyways, I interrupted you with what Alex and Shram said. What, what were you going to say in response to that? Well, I'd love to have her on and to, to try to evoke a conversation that touches on this subjective quality versus objective quality on, on my perspective and her case that like, no, even the subjective experience is objectively qualifiable. Oh, okay. What do you mean by that? So I asked her to spell it out more, and I hope that the Mead Institute is the venue to have these conversations in a transparent, professional way, because it was complicated. It's, um, it's basic. I, well, we should have her on. It, it basically, as I understand it, comes down to someone who's trained can determine not just objective flaws, whether they're present or not, but whether the whole beverage comes to together in a way that is objectively of quality or not. Okay. I think where I come with that is it depends on how you're trained and it depends on the culture you were trained in too, because I'm going to bring it back to coffee again. And I'm sorry, but it's how you're trained. <laughs> it is how I was trained. But as a Q grader, you, our ultimate goal is what we're talking about. You want to be able to be in a room with a bunch of other Q graders, and you would like to be able to score all the coffees on very similar levels that the other Q graders are scoring. But even within that system, you have people from different cultures and different backgrounds giving who are Q graders, but who are trained differently and who have different pools of depths and knowledge and different prior experiences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That your scores are way out of whack. Mm -hmm. And 
it takes a lot of conversation and a lot of cupping with those kinds of Q graders to eventually align with them. And even then you don't always see eye to eye at the end of the day, you're just, you have different subjective interpretations and you agree to disagree essentially in those conversations, but you're talking with someone who has had the training and who is looking for the same things you are looking for. And I just think you have a point in the sense that like, even if everyone's trained the correct way, you're still going to get different outcomes depending on the person's background. Individual human experience. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so someone's training and where they come from is something to consider. And it doesn't always have the outcome of everyone's objectively on the same page. Am I explaining that well to you? Yeah, so I, I hear you saying, and I've sat at me judging tables where it's like, we all agree that the meat is objectively clean, but subjectively for some people it lights them up and makes them go, well, this is incredible. Mm -hmm. And for other folks, it's like, meh, doesn't really pull together the way that I'm hearing you say it does for you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what Allison would say in that situation. And I'd love to have that conversation with her. But in my experience and perspective, it's okay for two people to have different perceptions of quality, of objective quality. Um, and in fact, I think that validates and enriches the meat market because there's room then for multiple producers to create their interpretation of a style or an offering. Mm -hmm. And if we didn't have that sense that, well, Producer A is going to find the customers that resonate with producer A's style of that style. And then producer B is going to find their customer base that resonates with that style. And then there's going to be a healthy argument and cross pollination between the groups because they're going to be like, I like producer B's style. I like producer A's style. Well, we should sit down and drink them together and talk about what makes A's and B's different and what makes them better to each of us. And maybe we'll convince each other that there's more going on here than we're individually holding, Yeah, which is like the ideal, right? Yeah, and it, it creates a more shared experience than a divisive experience, in my opinion, where... Instead of one person being the guru who determines the ultimate objective, subjective quality mark. Mm -hmm. It more becomes a collaboration in which I think is better for everyone involved than, yeah, just the top down approach generally doesn't resonate with the majority of people from my experience. It can resonate with a niche group of people, but... Yeah, it's just ultimately the more inclusive you can be within your framework, you definitely want to have the standards and you don't want objective flaws. But the bigger your framework can be, I mean, a rising tide lifts all. But I don't know, is there anything else you wanted to add to that conversation? No, I think that really uh, 
it does a good job of, of framing the conversation. I think having Allison on board to present the counterpoint and see if we can create a bit of a synthesis would, I think, be really valuable because it is helpful to an industry that is growing to have clear definitions of quality and clear markers of quality. Um, it's also, I think, important to encourage creativity and encourage a broad approach to creating offerings that work for all the different people we want to please in the mead world. So yeah, Allison, out there in podcast world, let's let's talk quality. You just got called out, Allison, from Frank. That's right. Anyways, that's our little short dive into quality and pricing. And hopefully we can have Allison on later. And, and let us know what you think. We would love to hear your thoughts on what makes a quality beverage alcohol. And is there such a thing as subjective quality or is it all objective? Um, are we out to lunch? Is it just about drinking the mead for effect? No, no, we must appreciate all of the beautiful work and ecological magic that goes into making this beautiful product. And if we miss that, then we're missing a huge part of the beauty of life that is right in front of us. Beautiful. Thanks. Cheers, guys. Cheers. And gals. All right. That's a wrap on subjective and objective tasting with mead. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us. We appreciate all the support we can get. If there's anything you'd like to know more about, feel free to email us at podcast at goldencoastmead.com with your questions and we'll try to answer them to the best of our abilities for you. Now here's your weekly bee joke. What kind of bees live in graveyards? Zombies. Meet out.